Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the seventh episode, I spoke with Steve Vassello, who is a general partner at Foundation Capital, a VC firm that invested in companies like Pocket, Netflix, Uber, and so on. Prior to that, Steve worked as a lead designer at IDEO, where he worked on a very famous phone, which you can probably find in your office even today. And that's a famous Cisco voice over IP phone. Now, recently, Steve published a book called The Way to Design, which helps designers become entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs adopt best design practices. So we talked a lot about the lessons from the book and some of the topics we covered were why will the 21st century be the century of design? Why empathy has become such a buzzword and what empathy really is? And we finished with some common struggles of designers who want to become entrepreneurs. And Steve, of course, gave his advice to designers who want to pursue such a career. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Steve. Okay, so Steve, um, I usually like to begin this podcast with a guest's personal story. And I'm particularly interested in what has led you to design. So how did you become a designer? Well, um, I guess it was, uh, in some senses, um, a bit accidental. So I was, as a kid, I was always interested in, um, in technical things, uh, built lots of Legos, as probably so many designers did. Um, yeah. and, and things, you know, not building the kits, but sort of things of my own imagination, if you will. And um, I always kind of knew, I, I guess, that I wanted to be um, an engineer or a person who uh, builds things, but um, it wasn't really until I came to Stanford for graduate school that I understood the role of design. And, and um, you know, as I think in some senses, accidental, I met uh, David Kelly. My first Friday at IDEO, my first fr- Friday at Stanford, rather, um, he was hosting a, um, a design seminar. And um, in just hearing him talk about design and the role of design, um, I thought to myself, wow, I, I, I didn't realize that this thing existed. Um, this person who kind of understands human needs and wants and kind of goes through uh, this process of rapid prototyping and uh, answering questions kind of in a more progressive sense and, and then um, ultimately uh, building and launching products. And so um, it was really, I think, uh, you know, this passion for building things and, and tinkering, if you will, from my childhood married with a sense of sort of user needs and wants um, that was really, I think, you know, brought into the focus through that interaction with David. And then, um, you know, I, I think it was uh, a few months later when through the course of a, a course that I was uh, t- taking at the time, this ME 101 class, that one of the instructors who, um, uh, who was actually working at IDEA at the time told me that, uh, hey, you know, you, you need to consider working at IDEO. And then I met with Kelly and a number of the folks and and uh, ended up spending that fateful summer back in uh, 1994 
at IDO. So, uh, and the rest is history. I'm just curious, like how popular was design back then? Because right now you can hear a lot and read about design a lot, right? So, uh, was it like that back then or how was it like? Uh, I don't think design was a terribly popular thing in, in the early 90s. Uh, I think there were certain, certainly pockets of interest in places like uh, Stanford and, and, uh, and, and certainly the schools that were dedicated to it. Um, but, you know, if you just said, broadly speaking, did uh, someone who was applying to universities uh, think about design as an area that they could go focus on? I don't think anyone thought of that. Um, which is why I think for me, it was one of those kind of happy accidents, if you will. Um, and then I also think just, you know, my experience, even in the early days at IDO, um, I think design in, in many ways at, at that time, and I talk about this in my book, um, was oftentimes sort of thought of as, as an afterthought. So you, um, you know, if you were working with a client, uh, you know, oftentimes they sort of worked on what they thought was sort of the core fundamental or technological components of, of uh, an opportunity or a problem. And they would bring the designers in um, to kind of make what the engineers had already conceived of look pretty, um, to kind of add a skin to it, if you will. And so this notion of you know, design, as we think about it today, I don't think is how um, design was thought of in those, in those early days um, you know, of, of, uh, you know, of, of the early 90s. I think that's a very nice segue into one of the big messages of your book and that um, it's very also interesting for this podcast, which is um, why is design even important? Like what, why, why should business people care about design and vice versa, right? So why should designers care about business? You know, I think um, to start, maybe why should business people care about design? I mean, and even technologists, uh, I'll start with that and then maybe come to the second point in a minute, but, you know, the, what I see here is an, is an evolution of a number of different things. First of all, you know, as a technologist myself, um, I look at, the, you know, the asymptoting uh, of so many of the technologies around us. So, you know, if, if you think about the fact that we've been dining on Moore's Law for really the last half century, it's, you know, it's beginning to slow down, both in terms of the, the actual uh, jumps themselves, the technological jumps, as well as the time in between. You know, we used to talk about sort of a doubling of, um, uh, of performance every 18 months. You know, it's not doubling and it's taking longer than 18 months today. Um, and so you're seeing basically, you know, big pieces of technological infrastructure become commoditized. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, you can tilt up your own instance uh, of, you know, AWS in minutes today or, you know, pop over to Azure or Google Cloud and, and do the same thing. And so, um, you know, what you're seeing is as that, kind of core underlying infrastructure gets commoditized, the vast majority of the innovation is now happening at the top of the stack at the interface within users. So there's a technological maturation happening. The other piece I think is, um, is that users' expectations have dramatically changed. Um, it used to be that you could have a mediocre product, but if you had good sales and marketing, um, you could sell you know, many, many units. Um, and that's why the world is filled with products uh, you know, that that you know, in the software world, it's called shelfware that you know, never get used by uh, by users, and you know, lots of other hardware products that are just complete garbage. Um, but I think you know, really, over the last uh, 15, 20 years, through you know the efforts of uh, of you know companies like IDEO and, and of course companies uh, like Apple and uh, and others, where we now have um, we have an expectation that 
you know, not just the smartphone in our pocket should operate in highly intuitive and user centered ways. But like when I walk into the, you know, the doctor's office, I feel like, why am I using a clipboard and filling out a form that I filled out 15 times already? And, um, and we're beginning to see, um, you know, this expectation of great interactions um, uh, permeate all these other experiences that we have. And so I think design as a sort of, uh, as a, as a component of core value creation, not as a sort of stylistic thing, but sort of the, you know, the fundamentals of, um, of, a, of a product, um, I think are manifesting great design today. So, so it's that maturation and also an increase in, in expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, then you ask the question of why do why designers need to care about business? Well, that's a, that's a great question too. <laughs> and it's, it's also core, core of the book um, as well. And I think, you know, I lived that. I was a product designer who then jumped into a startup, a very young startup when I joined my first company. Um, and I think so many designers um, uh, do what I think many business people did in the way back, you know, early days of design, which was, they would both design on. And I think designers are guilty of, of this, of the same uh, injustice, if you will, in the other direction, which is so many designers build a, you know, build something that meets perhaps a very personal need or, um, you know, addresses a, an opportunity space. And then, you know, just as you're thinking about launching this thing, or perhaps maybe they need to raise capital. Uh, someone asks that designing you know, designer founder, Hey, well, how are you going to turn this thing into a business? And all of a sudden they're kind of, I don't know. <laughs> and so, um, and so this notion of sort of bolting on a business model in the 11th hour is the failure mode that many designers have. And so I kind of joke in the book that, you know, we kind of, we, you know, coming, coming at sort of the, uh, the other discipline, uh, with perhaps the same, um, lack of, uh, lack of understanding. And so I think really what I see is when you, when you marry those disciplines, when you bring business technology and design together from the beginning, um, and don't approach the world as a bolt on, um, you, you know, you can, you can, you can really build some, um, compelling products that, that have, um, their monetization, uh, built in from the beginning that, that consider, um, uh, marketing, not as a, you know, as an afterthought, but as something that gets pulled through the product experience. Uh, they think about distribution the same way. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's really everyone thinking about the other disciplines much earlier in their, uh, in their thinking. So you probably meet a lot of designers, like in your role, right? Um, you meet a lot of designers who want to uh, become founders. I'm just curious, like, what are what do you see are the things that designers, founders struggle with the most? I think if I were to put it in one word, it's scale. Um, and I think um, the, the term that I would mean in this case, uh, specifically for designers, is oftentimes... Um, Designers are sort of zoomed in. They they you know, they, they come at problems from uh, the perspective of uh, of making something better, of some something that's wrong in the world that needs to be improved upon. And I, that's what I love about them. That sort of fundamental sense mm-hmm. for the human condition, and 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 noticing things that many others do not notice, and wanting to make those things better. And so this this belief that like I'm going to understand how the world is today and impart some bit of my own belief system and value system um, to make the world a better place. Uh, and that is, is such an incredibly powerful tool. It's, a, it's kind of a mutant power of great strength. Um, but I think where they occasionally stumble is 
in being able to kind of zoom out from that um, and be able to see, okay, it's not just these um, picayune details uh, that matter, but the question that I'm asking in the first place, um, is it the right, is it the right question? And, um, you know, when I'm beginning to scale my idea beyond just a few people, um, am I uh, able to hire individuals inside of my company that are um, different than the way I think that sort of challenge some of my assumptions? Am I able to sort of advocate for, um, uh, for elements of the design in the, in, and convince others in the organization that this is an important uh, undertaking, that it's just as important as scaling revenue is being able to understand sort of how this uh, product experience is going to, um, you know, is going to scale in the future. And so I think, um, you know, oftentimes uh, zooming out from, from the, the niggling details uh, and the specifics um, and, and not falling into that trap of tuning and tweaking um, is something that I think a lot of designers um, struggle with. Um, could you talk about maybe a few examples or best practices, how you try to work with these designers um, so they, they become basically better founders? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the book I highlight, you know, a number of different elements. Um, and there's, you know, this sort of fivefold path for uh, designers to level up to become great founders. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, just touching on a couple of those, you know, this, this point I was just mentioning a minute ago, you know, you can kind of encapsulate, I think, into this notion of what I call thinking bigger. And, um, you know, if I go back with an example, um, you know, Nate Weiner, who was the founder of a product which is called Pocket, it's now um, a part of Mozilla, was acquired by Mozilla about a year ago. But Pocket Mm -hmm. started out as a very personal project. I mean, Nate was um, trying to teach himself how to code. And so he was working at actually a creative agency in Minneapolis at the time. And he would stumble across interesting resources and articles, and he would um, mail these things to him. And and he found kind of later that these, these important resources were getting lost in his inbox. And so, you know, he built this very simple Firefox plugin, 160 lines of code that was a very specific, you know, kind of met this personal need of his, which is how many products are born. Um, and, and I think that's a Mm -hmm. great place to start. Um, because there's no doubt that there's a need there, right? You're sort of scratching an itch that you have yourself. But what I think Nate found uh, and what I see successful designers who become uh, who become founders doing is they begin to kind of understand all the other components that in the case of you know Nate's journey was seeing in, in the data as he began to sort of launch this product, which you know kind of almost took on a life of its own, that it was being used in other parts of the world uh, for different use cases. You know, it turned out people who didn't have uh, great cellular access on their smartphones were at the beginning of their commute to work, downloading a bunch of articles, uh, pocket articles, and then reading them on the train ride to work. And then what he discovered was, oh, people weren't just mailing articles around or links. They were also mailing uh, or, or saving, um, you know, these, uh, these, these videos or podcasts or uh, other types of content. It wasn't just around sort of this notion of links. And then, you know, kind of realizing, oh, this wasn't just about saving links. Ultimately, Pocket was going to become a great resource for people to share content. And so this notion of kind of understanding um, not just the specific use case that maybe got you started, but seeing the larger picture and the larger opportunity space and having a kind of more expansionist view of the opportunity is something that I see, you know, when, when, when designers make that transition to successful founders, they're able to, to do this well. They're able to kind of 
see, you know, kind of pull on that string and see how this opportunity that they started with is actually much larger. Um, that's one example. Um, you know, I, I think I think I could, you know, could, could bounce through some of the others, but um, maybe I'll hand it back to you. Um, so one thing that I wanted to also ask you, like when you are designer founder, and I have a couple of friends, and one thing I see is that, like you said, we usually care about a product a lot, right? And then we have someone else in the company who maybe cares more about the business side or technology side. So how do you see, how do good teams, how do good design, sorry, how do good startup teams uh, mix best practices from different um, disciplines, if I may call them this way, so that it doesn't feel like designer just does the design, business people just do the business, and technology just takes care of the tech, right? Because there is a lot of things that we can learn from um, each other as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're hitting on um, uh, a great question that to, to which the answer is, it depends on what scale the business is at. So in those early, early days, um, when, uh, when the ideas are, are kind of still in their formation, if you will, um, having all the different components of the product, whether that's the technology, the design, or the business elements, I think um, integrated and working together as much as possible, I think I've found to be um, hugely, hugely important. So that you don't feel like uh, design is just brought in um, as a styling exercise um, to, mm-hmm. um, to kind of tune things up, if you will. But when, you're, when your designers are involved in the, in the fundamental questions around how you're going to bring your product to market, um, and how to think about pricing. And, and in those early formative days, I think um, a high degree of integration, if you will, of the disciplines is very important. Um, as companies mature and, um, you know, in the course of interviewing 50 designers and designer founders for, for the way to design, I talked with companies that were early and others that, you know, were literally thousands of people. As, as companies mature, what you see is different kinds of issues coming up. So, Designers, for example, um, uh, will oftentimes do their best work when they're surrounded by other designers uh, because they're challenged and they're able to sort of um, have, you know, the kind of intellectual ping pong, if you will, around design challenges um, with with other individuals who are also skilled in the art. And so figuring out, and we, we um, talk about this a little bit in the book, this, this sort of the tension between integration with other disciplines and and mm-hmm. and concentration and working with other people who are um, who are also very um, very skilled and and figuring out how to kind of walk that balance um, at what stages in the company is I think every company has to figure it out on their own but knowing that there are strengths to both and that they depend on the con- both the stage and also the kinds of problems that you're working on but um, you know coming back to the early days in general you know don't think about design as something that gets um, that gets kind of bolted on. Um, the same way, you know, you don't want to think about sales as if it's something that you kind of have to go do, if you will. Think about sort of you're generating revenue as part of the product design spec, um, you know, as, as a constraint, if you will, as opposed to kind of a necessary evil that gets added on later. And that's exactly what I want to hear more about is like, is there a specific example or case study or anything you can talk about where you can apply design thinking, <laughs> um, design process to also more the business side, right? So you just mentioned this, how you can also use design to think about the revenue. Yeah, um, 
I'm thinking, you know, from those that we that we talk to. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, some of the uh, the work that Pinterest did early on, and they were, of course, benefiting from um, other services that had um, that had figured out, you know, figured out how to successfully monetize. So Twitter, for example, um, ultimately converged on this business model around promoted tweets and promoted accounts. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't something that existed from day zero, um, but was served as, I think, a great uh, model for Pinterest as they were trying to figure out um, their business model. And so the, the experimentation that I, that that team and we spent quite a bit of time with um, Evan Sharp uh, in, in our research uh, for the book and and looking at how they thought about the business model of promoted pins um, was something that they embraced much earlier in the life cycle than I think most other services, uh, consumer oriented services of their, you know, of, of, of their generation. Um, and so again, not thinking about, um, these other disciplines as, um, as, as, as a sort of, uh, an evil, if you will, as, as, as something that is, mm-hmm. a, uh, a chore that has to be, um, somehow uh, addressed, but rather as integrative. Diego Rodriguez um, uh, at IDEO now into it talks about, you know, oftentimes people think about the business model like uh, designing a bridge without gravity. It's like, yeah, you would design a different bridge if you didn't have to worry about the impact of gravity. And so uh, I think factoring that in the same way you factor in, um, you know, how am I going to get people to come back to this service? How will I think about user engagement? Um, how do I think about activating users and thinking about how am I monetizing those users with the same intentionality um, is something that I think Pinterest did pretty early on. Um, you know, I, I, I think about, you know, just the, the arc of my own career. Um, you know, I get as excited about beautiful business models uh, today as, as I do about, you know, wonderful product experiences. Um, because when, yeah. when business models are thought through from the beginning, um, and they are part of the, you know, the, the engine of the experience. When I, when I, when I see that working really well, uh, in a highly self-reinforcing way, um, I get, I get really excited because I, I, I believe those turn out to be, you know, the, the, the companies that really do survive. Yeah. So what's your favorite example? Like, uh, <laughs> favorite example of a nice, elegant business model? Um, you know, I think uh, Google is perhaps one of the most beautiful business models, and I'm speaking specifically to the Google AdWords business model, um, one of the most beautiful mm-hmm. business models on the planet, um, you know, as manifest by their uh, $700 billion market capitalization. Um, and <laughs> I, I think, you know, in that case, it is, um, you know, it's easy to look back, back on it and say, okay, yeah, like, let's all have Google's business model. But, you know, the idea that um, that, you know, your goal is to actually get users off of your site as fast as possible. Like it's completely counterintuitive, uh, but makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Um, and that because, you know, they didn't come to Google uh, to, to, to look at Google. They came to Google to find the thing that they really needed, whether that was to purchase something or to you know, find an answer to a to hard question or to find a research paper back in the early days of Google. Um, but that, you know, I think at a time when everyone else was saying, how can we keep you on our site for as long as possible? Google was saying, how can I get you off our site and, and onto the thing that you really want to go do? Um, and, and to then get paid in the process for that. 
um, in a way that I think probably for the first 10 years of Google's life, if you were to ask a mainstream consumer, do you have any idea how Google's making money? Uh, the answer would be, I have no idea. They didn't, they didn't know that the first two or three links uh, were sponsored. And perhaps maybe that, you know, afterwards people perhaps felt some sense of, um, uh, you know, of, 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 of concern that they you know, were using this product and didn't know how it was making money or didn't understand that AdSense links over in the, in the right sidebar, um, you know, were being monetized. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it is, it is, however, a business model I think people have come to expect and, and believe is, is one that is constant with the underlying product experience that we're going to give you some, some things that, you know, in, hopefully with full transparency that you understand are, are being paid for, but, they're also related to what you're looking for. Um, so I think that's a beautiful example of when a business model is really singing. Yeah. Um, another thing that I like about a Google example is that um, this auction pricing model they have is just phenomenal in extracting, capturing the value that it can, right? So a lot of the startups and companies, especially startups, have problem uh, figuring how much they can charge and how much uh, their product is actually valued. And with the Google example, they basically don't even have to set a price because <laughs> the competition takes care of itself, right? If you're willing to pay more, then there is value for you and you just pay more. That's right? exactly right. Now, of course, that business model was invented by Overture <laughs> and then taken by Google, but uh, but it is, it is yeah, it's yeah. the other side of the transaction. And it's absolutely beautiful. Yep. And so when, yeah. Yeah, when, you, when you see things like that, um, you know, at, at, at the business model level, um, you become, I, I become, have become very uh, respectful of, you know, what it looks like to design a beautiful, uh, beautiful altogether business, mm -hmm. not just, you know, the user experience, not just the technology underlying it, but also how you monetize it. Just going back for a second to the Pinterest example, um, you said that they started thinking about um, the business side much faster than usually. So uh, what does this much faster mean? So when did they start thinking about it and what kind of experiments have they run? Um, so, you know, Pinterest has been around for probably seven, eight years now. Um, and I would say, you know, if you looked at the majority of consumer companies, pure consumer experience companies, um, oftentimes they, they didn't layer on these business models till they were four or five years old. They were, you know, kind of many rounds into fundraising. And um, Pinterest, yeah. uh, you know, so the the... The, the conversations we had illuminated the experiments that they had from almost the beginning. I, I think it was not quite at the, you know, kind of in the series a window, but once they began to, to see that this usage um, was, uh, was actually quite uh, that, that the usage model and the notion that people might be looking for the products that they were, that they were pinning um, again, perhaps an obvious insight, in, you know, in, in uh, retrospect, but that this was that they would that they would be um, crazy not to begin experimenting with this stuff early on. So it was only the company was only a couple of years old when they began to run some of those experiments, and they're still you know it's, it's as with you know I think any any well run particularly design led uh, company they're in a constant state of experimentation, and so um, you know they continue forward with this. But but I believe that um, you know it started pretty early in their life cycle. Not as a bolt-on. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. So this experimentation discussion brings me to 
another very interesting point from your book, which is about the empathy. Um, so I, I, I'd like to read you one sentence <laughs> that I found uh, interesting. Maybe you can comment on it. So basically it goes like this. Um, it's short. So it says, too much empathy can kill your company. Yeah. So can you elaborate on this? You bet, bit? you bet. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this uh, it's in, intended to be very provocative, but I think um, oftentimes uh, I think folks begin, designers especially, begin uh, sentences uh, with words like I believe or I think, mm-hmm. or they kind of come from this, uh, you know, s- s- some sort of feeling, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think that empathy as a, as a term, as sort of a fundamental term around user-centered or human-centered design over the last few years has become so pervasive as to almost be uh, meaningless. And just because you feel something or believe something uh, doesn't mean you're empathizing with your audience or your users. And so um, I have noticed that, you know, empathy has become sort of this almost overused term in the industry. Um, and what I mm-hmm. encourage designers to do is to start with the humans. And in fact, it's a, you know, kind of the, the larger lens, which we can talk about later around sort of not just humans, but humanity. Um, but start with, start with users, but really come at it, um, from a discipline point of view, come at it from a evidenced, you know, evidence-based perspective. Um, look at how users are using your products and build the compassion that you have for those users um, through uh, what you learn, as opposed to what you might feel, uh, what you might sort of just kind of, kind of grasp from the air. And so, uh, it's not that I don't think empathy matters. I think it is fundamental, but I think it's. Uh, my definition of empathy is evidence-based compassion, not, uh, not feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, you know, so many folks just uh, sort of have dismissed what it really means to empathize, what it really means to do user research and to do the kind of foundational ethnography and hard work of understanding um, users' needs and wants. Um, and we need to kind of get back to that. Um, and, you know, I think maybe the sort of the, 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 the other sort of joke embedded in that in that comment in that line that you read is that um, you know the the creative process is one about absorbing things that you see whether they're wrong or things you wish were better um, but it isn't just listening to what users want um, you know there are many many case studies of companies that you know led focus groups asked users you know, specifically, what do you want? Um, and didn't get, you know, didn't, their users don't come back to them with, you know, uh, a plaque which says, if you build this, this is exactly, you know, where, you know, what I've been looking for my, you know, my life. And so I, I think the role of the designer is to uh, observe, to understand, to build um, this evidence-based compassion for but then to go build something, oftentimes not the thing that the user was asking for, but when they see it is what they wanted all along. And that's the, you know, the hard work of, of designing and of, uh, of, of, of imparting some of your own points of view and, and wishes and values uh, upon the world um, with, you know, with this sort of um, this, this new creative experience or creative object. So not just looking for the answers to your hardest problems for your users, but, um, but, you know, imparting some of that, um, from yourself. Mm-hmm. Because if you ask people, uh, what I want, they're just going to want a faster horse, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the analogies. There's plenty of examples of, uh, you know, of, of, 
of other companies. I remember in the early days of uh, minivans, not to sort of minivans are sort of the bane of most designers uh, uh, design content, but like, you know, there were, there were companies who ran focus groups and asked um, the, the early uh, adopters and customers of minivans, whether they would like a sliding door on the driver's side and universally uh, the, 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 the user said, no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with just one, the passenger side. Cause of course the first minivans were basically like little cargo vans, which only had sliding doors on one side. And, um, you know, the company that basically added the first uh, driver's side sliding uh, door did it not because the user said that, that that's what they wanted. They did it because they believed this was a better product. And of course, you know, ex post, all those users said, of course, this is what I wanted. <laughs> Why would I only want to put stuff in on one side of the vehicle? <laughs> of course. And so there's just many examples of, I think, when you ask people what they want, they don't, they don't tell you uh, the thing that you should be building. So how do you see the best um, startup teams gather this data, whether it's qualitatively or quantitatively? You know, it's um, it's a, a mix of prototyping and very acute um, uh, listening and and observation. And so, um, we would at IDEO in the early days, um, we would build these points of view, these sort of hypotheses, if you will. And these were not sort of diffuse hypotheses; these were very kind of penetrating. Like we believe this is what um, we should be building. And oftentimes, uh, we need to break those. Uh, you know, break those ideas apart and test them uh, in, with smaller prototypes. And so we would um, build a prototype to, to answer a question. Um, oftentimes, I think people miss the point of, of, of rapid prototyping and they, you know, build these uh, elaborate prototypes to try to answer five or 10 questions in one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we try to do is chunk it out, build a, a we call it sort of an area prototype to answer a very specific question, um, and then show it to the smartest people uh, we knew and, 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 and also to users, real users and get their feedback, um, and, and be ruthless and bloodless about what we heard. Um, even if it was, uh, you know, not in support of what our, what our sort of, uh, intended, uh, or expected, uh, hypothesis was, was gonna, was gonna suggest. And so I think it's this balance of expression in the form of prototypes, uh, whether those are physical things or landing pages or, uh, little vignettes of experiences and and, and uh, wireframes, and and then and then being pretty uh, bloodless about uh, the experimentation of the data gathering. So using those tools that are much more pervasive today than they were um, uh, 20 years ago. The other piece I'd say, and this gets to the empathy uh, point around sort of really building understanding for your users. So one of my favorite projects um, at IDEO that was uh, that was being led by my my friend and. and uh, IDEO sort of uh, roommate at the time we shared an office, Leon Siegel and I, um, and and this was a project that we were working on for Medtronic. This was one of the um, uh, the first uh, defibrillators uh, that was intended to be available to not uh, first responders uh, who were trained, but like you witness someone having a heart attack next to you in the airport, and you could literally run to the to the wall and grab the Medtronic defibrillator. Uh, and hopefully, you know, save this person's life. But one of the things that Leon did, which was absolutely brilliant um, for the entire design team, was he handed us uh, early in the project, he handed us each a pager. Um, this is before smartphones and one of those um, old Kodak analog throwaway cameras. And over the course of a long weekend, um, Leon basically paged each of us three or four times. And so each page represented a heart attack and we needed to 
to capture what we were doing, where we were, who was around us. Uh, and we took all these photographs so that we could experience and build a sense for what it was like to have a heart attack. Um, and what would be the things that uh, you might want to do to support the individual who's going to save the life of this person who just had the heart attack. And so it was really understanding users, not in a sort of with casual observations and diffuse hypotheses, but with really strong points of view and prototypes and experiments um, that could, uh, could test those, uh, those ideas um, with, uh, with real people. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can also immerse yourself in this problem, right? So with this pager, yeah. you basically experienced the same thing. Nice. Cool. Yeah. No, I had, whatever. I had three heart attacks in a weekend, thankfully. <laughs> cool. Uh, there's one more topic I wanted to touch upon, which is um, your um, education, right? So you also got an MBA. So right, we talked about you getting um, being in Stanford and first uh, finishing, I think you said you were like a product designer first, right? Yep. Um, and then after you worked a few years for IDEO, um, you decided to take an MBA. So I'm just curious, like what made you um, make this decision? Yeah, so I uh, had started uh, my career as a product designer and I've worked on lots of hard technical problems and worked on you know, opportunities that had uh, trained me to be tuned into you know, the needs and wants of real users. So I felt like in so many ways I understood, you know, the, the user centered and the sort of solving hard technical uh, uh, problems components of, uh, of, of building a business. But what I didn't understand was business models. So at the time, um, IDEO was very much a consulting business model, a time and materials business model. And um, I remember uh, telling David Kelly, David Kelly shortly before I uh, went to my first startup and left IDEO that, you know, I wanted to figure out a way to make money while I was sleeping. Um, so not, <laughs> not have to, not have to just um, make money when we were billing hours. And, um, uh, you know, I, I felt like in so many ways uh, this appreciation that I had for great business models, companies like eBay or, uh, or, or Google, as we talked about earlier, I, I didn't know what a good business model looked like. Um, and I, I, acknowledged and believed that that was an important part of building a successful business. In fact, my last project idea was uh, leading the uh, Cisco voiceover IP phones development. And this was, um, you know, a, a pretty uh, expansive effort across all of our disciplines from interaction design, human factors to industrial design, mechanical and electrical engineering, um, uh, industrial design, of course, as well in there. And, one of the jokes I had was as I got to know Cisco quite well as our client, I discovered that Cisco, you know, they, they didn't really have the best routers or the best switches. Um, what they had was the best sales forces. In fact, um, they knew how to sell uh, anything. And in fact, I, I, I joked with folks after we finished this project that we probably could have designed a pretty mediocre phone and they still would have sold, you know, 700 million of these units. It turned out that we designed, I think, you know, the last great desk phone and, and, yeah. uh, and they declared victory on, on the category. And, and now this is a product that you can literally see everywhere. But um, Cisco and, and there are other companies at the time, Oracle was another example, where I discovered that um, uh, for better or for worse, the best product does not always win. And so that, and that was a pretty fundamental tenet of the Stanford D School and, and my IDEO experience. 
and that there were companies that didn't have the best products, but that had built incredible institutions. And so I had this sort of stupiphany of sorts, uh, you know, like, oh, man, what what is it that I need to go do to learn how to build great business models? So I I felt like, um, you know, there was no Y Combinator at the time. So um, the best bet for me was uh, was to go back to business school. So I actually went relatively uh, was one of the older people in, in my class so relatively late relative to um, to others. Um, but uh, treated it as a sabbatical of sorts and did a lot of experimentation and started a company while I was there, uh, joined a startup as I was leaving, um, did a lot of work um, with some startups. And, and uh, I think coming out of that experience for me to have, uh, you know, as deep of an appreciation uh, and respect for uh, for all the other components of building a great business was what I got out of, got out of that experience and what I am so grateful for today. Mm-hmm. So you talked a lot about the business models. Um, how does one learn about business models? Let's say I'm a designer, I'm not so uh, business savvy, and I want to learn more about different business models. How do I go about it? Well, I, I, I think first is, is develop the same curiosity that you have for how things are designed or made. And I think, you know, I, uh, I can't hold a physical object without sort of being curious about, you know, was this a die cast part or was this thing uh, machined from solid aluminum? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking at my MacBook Pro at the moment. Um, uh, and, uh, and the same thing in terms of when I use an incredible um, uh, web application and I immediately pop to viewing the source code to sort of see how did they, how did they do this. And so I think that same curiosity that designers and technologists have for um, how the products uh, they use work and how they are designed um, have that same curiosity about how the business models um, work. So, you know, when I, when I think about um, uh, Netflix as you know, one of our portfolio companies here at Foundation Capital, um, how they evolved their business model over time is, is, is a wonderful case study. This is a company that literally bought DVDs, you know, bought them at, you know, at, at basically rack rates, if you will. And, and then, shipped them around the country uh, using the U.S. Postal Service in red envelopes uh, to users uh, who basically were tired of paying late fees to Blockbuster. Like that's that was the fundamental idea behind this business. Now, of course, they then went on to build and, you know, they knew, knew they were going to do this from the beginning. They were going to build a, you know, a digital distribution model. It was called Netflix from the beginning. It was just a matter of time of uh, for that technology to catch up with the vision. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, now today, what are they doing? They're producing their own content. Um and, you know, are the largest, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're investing $8 billion this year in new content. And so this is a company that, you know, I look at and I love my the user experience in Netflix. I love the fact that, you know, my user interface is different than your user interface and that there's, you know, effectively 100 million different user experiences for 100 million different users. That's a beautiful thing as a, as a design mm-hmm. exercise. But the beauty of the business model that they have created um, to be really the first global uh, network for uh, high quality content, like that's, you know, that's an amazing thing to admire as well. And so I'd say it starts with great curiosity. There are certainly, um, a number of cases and, and, uh, resources out there as you kind of, kind of get into the mode of studying, you know, what is it about, uh, yeah. you know, um, you know, this business or that business. I, I joke one of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the books that I've, 
mentioned and, and given probably more than any other book to, uh, to entrepreneurs is this book called Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, mm, and um, it is a fantastic book. And it's, it's, it's a book that specifically, I think, helps folks uh, get a sense for business models as well, because it's these case studies as to why mm. uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger invested in, you know, some of the, the, the most successful iconic brands of, of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. We could even say that um, you could turn your empathy toward business models, right? That's one way to do it. I think that's right. I think it's you know where where empathy again, you know, my definition again, kind of kind of comes back to this sort of evidence based yeah. compassion. And so, um, you know, the 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 business model, the reason this matters so much, and there's a reason why I think so many folks uh, perhaps you know get it wrong, is that to build truly sustainable businesses. And I mean, sustainable in terms of like, they will live for generations. They don't need to be uh, subsidized with venture capital dollars. They are subsidized by users who love their products, who, you know, will, will wait around the block, sleep out overnight for those products yeah. to get launched. Right. Like that's when you, un when you understand value, you understand the value you're creating and you're able to build a product that creates value for your users and creates value for your business. That's a sustainable business. And, you know, our portfolio companies that reach that state, those are the, those are the ones that, that turn out to be the most enduring companies. And I think, you know, to use the word empathy on business model probably sounds foreign and makes some designers uh, want to throw up in their mouths. Um, but I think when you get it right, um, you, you really have the ability to, to build something that awesome. will last. I think that's a great point also to, finish our conversation i also want to be mindful over time just the last question um so where can listeners who are interested more in your work or in the book um get in touch with you or find more info yeah so you can find me on twitter at um at basalo that's v as in victor a s s as in sam a l l o <laughs> and um, you can you can uh, you can also find uh, some some of these ideas fleshed out even further at thewaytodesign.com, and uh, that's a link to the book, um, which uh, was uh, an enormous amount of work, and uh, it's really sort of a gift from the fifty designers, designer founders, and scholars and historians that um, spent a lot of time uh, with me and and our team to share their wisdom and insights and. Um, I'm really proud of where it ended up. And I think, you know, begins at least the conversation uh, about how designers uh, can become successful founders and how founders who maybe don't know that much about design, but know they should get smart on design, like what do they need to do in order for uh, design to sort of have a, you know, a bigger impact on their organization. So it's really meant for both designers as well as, as well as non-designers to, um, to really sort of elevate the, the conversation. Yeah, it's it's a really, really great book. The content and also the design. Like I was really amazed by the amount of work that you put into design. It's just so easy to read and that's not easy to do. So hats <laughs> off for this. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, glad you enjoyed it. And I hope, hope uh, your listeners resonate with it as well. Cool. Steve, thanks again for your time. That was really awesome. You bet. Thanks, Alan. It's been a pleasure and uh Really love where you're headed with this and uh, can't wait to see what comes of it. Cool. That's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. 
Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.